Amiguis, Brenda here to tell you there's still time to join us for some fun activities in July. First, we have a community hike on Tuesday, July 18th for Latino Conservation Week. We are meeting at Sycamore Grove Park in Highland Park starting at 6 p.m. We're going to start the hike promptly at 6.30. This will be a guided hike up to the top of Debs Park. Bring your friends Tuesday, July 18th. Next, on Thursday, July 20th, we are hosting Money Chisme, a money mindset reset and mixer. Many of us carry heavy burdens about money, we're afraid to make money moves, or simply don't know where to start. We're creating a fun and inviting space to challenge our limiting beliefs about money with Money Coach Charlie. This will be at the Pop Hop, an independent bookstore and community space in Highland Park that we love to partner with. And once again, this will be on Thursday, July 20th, starting at 7 p.m. You can register for either of these events at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Once again, that is tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Lastly, did you know that you can book Tamarindo? That's right. We're available for workshops, live versions of our show, panels, or as keynote speakers. I'm a formerly undocumented political nerd with experience working with social justice nonprofits and causes. Anna Sheila is a queer wellness entrepreneur and mindset coach. Hire each of us or both of us. And if you'd like to bring us to your university, conference, or to MC an event, please reach out to us directly at contact at tamarindopodcast.com. Once again, the email is contact at tamarindopodcast.com. All right, we're still on summer break. So this week we are revisiting our talk with Dr. Manuel Pastor about how we can build a better economy centered on people, equity, and mutuality. Listen to it now. Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast, hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder. And me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Welcome to the show. What's up, Tamarindo Amiguis? We missed you. Hi. Hello, hello. Yes, we took a, a week off as you all listened. We had a little reshare of a past episode that was very important. We hope you liked it. So today we're, we're really excited. We're going to talk to Dr. Manuel Pastor about his new book, Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, which he co-authored with Dr. Chris Brenner. But before we do that, Ana Sheila, it is March. It's Women's History Month. And I thought I'd ask you, is there a woman that you admire? And can you tell us who it is and why? So besides my mom and Oprah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about this question on my drive over. We are in studio together, y'all, in L.A. So drive over from Riverside. Shout out. Let's cue uh, Jenny, the <laughs> Jenny 69 song right here. <laughs> Anywho, um, I was thinking about this question and I actually was, you know, thinking about who to say. And I came at my answer in the opposite order. So I thought about, like, what are the qualities that I admire in in people and specifically in women. So I'm going to start by actually, I'm going to indulge me. I'm going to tell you what makes me inspire. Okay. What what inspires me in women. All right. So here we go. Number one, women who are willing to imagine new ways of being, even when they seem hard or unimaginable. Mm. 
women who call out oppressive learnings and systems and ways of being on a daily basis with their platform or what they do. Women who put themselves first because they know that when we are well, that's when we can do our best work and that's when we can Are you describing us? Are you describing us? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, basically. We try to emulate what we admire, right? Um, Women who are vulnerable because they see the strength in vulnerability as a form of self-healing and also healing for community when people resonate with what we're sharing, right? Women who are boldly themselves and push back against shame, ideas of what they're supposed to look like and be like. Women who are grounded in a why that makes this world a better place and where abundance and wealth is a byproduct of the work they do, not the driving force. So those are a, a few of the, the big things that I, I identified and in, in what I am. And also a, a really, someone that's really connect, women that are really connected to themselves. And you can see that in the work that they do. You can see that they're super aligned with what they're doing. And so I'm just going to shout out a few names really quick on okay, women that I think yeah. um, that do this. So Prisca Dorcas. The, Prisca Dorca, Mojica Rodriguez. Yes. yes, yes, yes. The writer of Brown Girls with Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts. Monica Ravides, creator of Mujeres Rising. No fair. You stole my things. homework. You stole my <laughs> Homework. Continue, continue. <laughs> Kim Guerra, writer and creator of Badass Bonita. Patrice Colors, a writer of Abolitionist Handbook and co-creator of the of one of the co-founders of BLM, right? And Glennon Doyle, writer of Untamed. So those are a few women that I feel like capture a lot of those elements for me. So those, that's my answer to that question. <laughs> cosign, cosign, cosign. Get that you, Brenda. So you already stole my homework. So all I could say is that those values that you described about women in leadership and, and what we should be admiring in folks, I'm right there with you. So aligned, aligned, 100% aligned. And one little note about uh, Priscadorca Mojica Rodriguez is that by the time you all are hearing this, she would have already spoke to my students, but my students are so excited to speak to her. She's going to zoom into our class in Chicano Studies. I'm super, I guess a little matraca to my students because um, I, I've been treating this class, I realize, like a graduate level course, even though it's Chicano 101. <laughs> so, uh, but these kids are handling it. They're doing so well. I, each of them is, was in charge of presenting a chapter from uh, Prisca Dorca Mojica Rodriguez's book. And these are heavy topics and they're doing an excellent job. So shout out to my students. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, super dope. Well, now let's get on with our chat with Dr. Manuel Pastor, whose research generally focuses on issues of the economic, environmental, and societal conditions facing low-income urban communities and the social movements seeking to change those realities. Let me start by telling you what Angela Glover Blackwell, founder of PolicyLink, has to say about solidarity economics. Quote, in this powerful blueprint for an equitable future, Manuel Pastor and Chris Benner provide a bold critique of conventional wisdom about who owns the economy. They challenge us to radically imagine how we can design our economy to be fully inclusive and guided by the principles of mutuality and solidarity, ensuring that we put people first. I love that. And I'm excited to hear more about how a people first economy is even possible. All right. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for making the time to join us here on Tamarindo. Un placer estar con ustedes. Love it. I love it. So to get started, I'd love to ask you just some fun, get to know you questions. These are what we call our rapid fire questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite music to dance to? So I'm going to give you a slow answer to that because uh, my family loves to dance together, my wife and kids. And there's three things when you ask that question I thought about. One is we like them to dance with us to old style salsa, uh, Ruben Blades, Willie Cologne, the music uh, my wife and I fell in love with. Uh, second, 
uh, one of our favorite family dance parties was to Tense, the Anderson Pack and uh, Kendrick Lamar uh, uh, song that's totally danceable. And then our third favorite dance party is to Sissy Bastida's Un Sueño, a collaboration with Aldo Black. And I don't even know what you call that music. It's <laughs> Latin, it's punk, uh, it's everything. She's a fantastic Tijuana-born, L.A.-living uh, Latinx singer. I love it. So much range. There's so much range there. <laughs> I love that. Now, what do you get? What do you give your matraca to? This is what one thing you're celebrating. Could be big, could be small. What is giving you a lot of joy? Um, over the last couple of months, my daughter's been falling in love with someone wonderful. And that brings such joy to a dad's heart. Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, that's great. Always room for matracas for love. And then uh, opposite of that, what goes in la basura? What are you canceling? What are you done with? What are you over? I'm totally hoping the world is over with Vladimir Putin. We're recording this in a time of a war and an invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it's scary for those folks. I wish we could get a piece of chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, considering all that, you know, the heaviness of the news and, and all that we've got going on, how do you stay grounded? Where do you find your moment of calma? Um, lifting weights in the gym. Awesome. Me too. I <laughs> love it. I love it. Que bueno, que bueno. <laughs> well, thank you. I think that lets folks know a little bit more about who we have here. Now, you know, you've been researching and writing about the role of social movements in changing the conditions that produce poverty, that produce disparities. You've been writing about this for a really long time. And I have to say, you do it in a really approachable and downright funny, sometimes, you know, really funny way. So I want to know, you know, that's led you now to this latest book, Solidarity, Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, which you co-wrote with Dr. Brenner. Can you walk us a little bit through the premise of this book? I would love to. Uh, you know, I've been saying recently that the wonderful thing when you finish a book is that you get it in your hands and you look at the cover and this particular cover is beautiful because it's got people working together, but it's also got people protesting uh, for social change. Of course, the sort of sad thing about finishing a book is that you realize that you could say what you said in 250 pages in just three sentences. So I'll save you a little bit of time. Okay. Here, are the three, <laughs> here are the three sentences of the book. Uh, the first is that we need to stop talking about the economy and always talk about our economy. When we talk about the economy, it makes it seem like it's a set of rules that are out there made by God or nature or the market that can't be changed. But the sets of rules that govern our economic relationships, those are legal rules we put in place. Those reflect the constellation of political power. It is our economy. And when you talk about it as our economy, it really makes a difference in the sense of people feeling like they can have an impact on changing the contours of economic policy. Second big point in the book is that those of us who are progressive often argue for fairness or equity, and we should, but we often argue sort of accepting that fairness and equity and inclusion might come at the cost of prosperity. But what my co-author Chris Benner and I have shown in a series of books, in a series of statistical tests, is that 
metropolitan regions in the United States that are more equal, that are less racially segregated, that are less fragmented in terms of jurisdictions, are actually able to sustain employment growth better over time. And we actually know that when we start stop over-incarcerating, we create a situation where people can put out their most productive talents and contribute to our economy. When we uh, have DACA and allow people to not be permanently frozen out of a labor market, their talents are available to make our economy grow, to start new businesses, etc. We know when we invest in communities that have the poorest kids, English learners, etc., we're creating productivity for the future. And so a big point in this book is that we need to be arguing for equity, for fairness, to be sure, but racial equity also is absolutely key to prosperity in the future. The third point is that why doesn't all this happen? Because some people benefit from the current constellation of economic arrangements and political power. And because of that, we need social movements to be able to challenge political power. For example, uh, we've had these, you know, we've known for about 25 years that raising the minimum wage doesn't cost jobs. David Card just got a Nobel Prize for research he did 25 years ago on that topic. So we've known that for a quarter century. But we didn't get an increase in the minimum wage until there was a fight for 15. Labor unions and community people struggling together to raise the minimum wage here in the city of LA, the state of California, other states. So we need social movements to be able to change economic policy. And the last thing that's really good about that is just like markets make us selfish, they make us think about our own self-interest and compete with one another. Movements make us mutual. When we participate in movements for racial justice, for economic justice, for environmental justice, we build bridges with other communities. And the struggle against anti-Black racism becomes a Latino struggle as well. The struggle for trans rights becomes a fundamental human rights issue. And the struggle for immigrants to be able to be able to be able to get a toehold in America becomes just a struggle about human dignity and opportunity. So that's the book in a nutshell. I love that. I, there's there's so much there that I that I that speaks to me that speaks to our listeners. But I want to just underscore just this notion of it's not the economy, right? It's not this like we a lot of people we talk about the algorithm, right, or the yeah. economy. No, it's ours, you know, <laughs> and it's and it's up to us to to change it. A pe people centered economy. So there, it's it's fantastic, really great read. I want everybody to pick it up, even though you did give us the the overview here. You know, what I, what I love about this book and, of course, some of your previous work like State of Resistance is that from the onset, there's a clear recognition of how racism informs economic policy. So here's an example, this, this notion that a lot of um, political, the political triumphs of neoliberalism is, quote, drenched in a racist vision that we needed to shrink the state so that one group of Americans could retain privilege. And as I read that, you know, I really connected it to, to the State of Resistance book on how you described that California in the 70s, you know, when public 
education, when we th- thought about schools and we noticed that the demographics of schools was changing and becoming more diverse, more brown and black, that is at the same, that's the same time that we got things like Prop 13 and we've got this now a sudden alert aversion to taxes. So I, I see that connection there. But, you know, there's also a lot of hope in, in your book. There's this, this, this thinking of uh, 2020 and the, the moment in time that we're in, how the pandemic um, exasperated or, or brought to the forefront the disparities that were already there. Do you think that this moment in time is a, is a catalyst for some of the type of change that you're calling for in this book? There was a lot in that question, Rena. So uh, <laughs> let me say just a couple things. One uh, that I think is interesting about this book is it actually came out of a conversation with social movement actors. In 2018, uh, Chris and I were trying to put together like a progressive economic program for California because we were in the middle of a gubernatorial uh, race and we thought that would be a good thing to enter into the debate. And we actually did put that together in a document called From Resistance to Renewal, a 12-step program for the California economy, with the idea being that California needed to overcome its addiction to inequality, racism, and short-term thinking. But in the process of putting together that sort of list of policies, we had focus groups around the state with social movement actors. And the main thing they said was that we need they needed not so much policies as an alternative narrative to be able to weave it together. A narrative that looked at economic common ground, but as you pointed out, also understood how central race was to uh, understanding what's happened in this neoliberal era. You know, It is no surprise that the father of neoliberal economic policy in the United States, Ronald Reagan, had one of his most important speeches during the 1980 campaign was delivered in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the place where three civil rights workers were slain by the Ku Klux Klan. A speech in which he talked about states' rights. What Ronald Reagan was doing was heralding an era in which government support for people would be cut because the nature of who the people were was changing. And so we thought it was really key to center race in this story. So much so that when we sent this book off to our publisher, uh, we had it reviewed by a bunch of social movement actors who gave us good feedback. And then the publisher came back to us and said, you know what, I really like the book, but you guys talk too much about race in this book. So you know what we did? We doubled down and we talked even more about race in the final version because we understood that unless we were making clear how central racism has been to the neoliberal economic project of trying to make people think of themselves just as individuals, just as tribes apart from other uh, tribes uh, that we really weren't carrying our message through. And that gets us to the current moment. Because I think one of the things that COVID did was that it was the disease that revealed our illnesses as a society. The racial wealth gap that meant so many people of color were unable to uh, go without working and exposing themselves to risk. The overcrowded housing conditions that meant that if you were exposing yourself uh, at risk at work, you were bringing it home and more likely to communicate it to other family members. 
the digital divide, which is highly racialized, uh, which meant that so many kids would be left behind in that era of learning. So COVID really sort of shone a light on pre-existing conditions of racial and economic inequality. And it created a sense of mutuality and division at the same time. The mutuality that led people to staff soup kitchens and help their neighbors, that led people to understand that the murder of George Floyd was something that everyone should care about. And at the same time, of course, the divisiveness that's taken place uh, with regard to COVID rules and masks and vaccines. So we're really at a critical turning point now between tribalism and mutuality. And we need to work to build bridges to see each other. We're going to take a really short break. And when we get back, I'm going to dive into a little bit more about safety nets. As you were just answering the last question, I was thinking back to the book and it's a native expression or this allegory or story about what wolf we feed, you know, whether it's the mutuality wolf or or the, yes. uh, the you know, the self-centered wolf. And, and I think that's also really, really, really key and central to, to what you're saying here. And I want to talk now about, about safety nets. I, something that you talk about in the book is that we should really start thinking of social programs not as safety nets, but instead thinking of them as, quote, sharing of abundance as a form of mutual investment in our collective well-being. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, the language of safety net sort of implies that things are fair and that occasionally people fall through the cracks. But that's not how inequality takes place in the United States. Things are rigged from the beginning and communities are not disadvantaged, they are structurally disempowered. So if we really want to change things, giving up the language that evokes charity and instead having language that evokes solidarity and mutuality is absolutely essential. So people have a right to a decent house. People have a right to good education and they have a right to have an opportunity to contribute through work regardless of their ability. And when you start to think about things in that kind of a way, you're not thinking about rescuing anyone. You're thinking about creating a fair set of conditions so that everyone can thrive. And gosh, do we have it in abundance? I mean, one of the things that we fail to recognize is how much of what is considered private wealth is actually socially generated. For example, I have an iPhone, others may have Androids, but regardless of which one you've got, about half of the technology in that was actually paid for by your tax dollars, investing in the development of DARPA, in the internet, microchips, and all the technology that's there. Now, uh, Apple gets all the return from the phone you don't. Uh, so is that really fair? Or should some of that wealth that's being generated be used to create things like baby bonds, uh, money that you give kids when they're born so that we can really begin to address the racial wealth gap uh, and the income wealth gap that exists? Um, should we 
be understanding that uh, social media companies make money because they share your data, but you don't get any return from that. You just get led into various consumer cul-de-sacs. Shouldn't they be paying a tax that returns some of that to us uh, in the way of allowing us to invest in each other? So, and then, you know, a lot of the programs might wind up looking the same. They wouldn't be means tested, saying we're only going to help you if you're desperately poor and you can show that you've been trying to find a job. Um, but we would be doing it more out of a sense of mutuality than out of charity. Amen to that. You know, I, I think there's so many of these um, these notions of uh, need base are really rooted in this thinking that, you know, you're only as valuable as what you can contribute. <laughs> and that's just wrong. And, there, and now you've shown so many different ways that we we're, we are contributing in, in invisible ways that at least not highly visible that we ought to be getting our cut from, <laughs> like what you just described. No. And it's, it, you know, it goes so far beyond that. I mean, you think about the tremendous wealth in the society. I think the other thing that I would really lift up here is also everyone has something to contribute. And the sense of contribution is something that gives meaning to our lives. For many of us, our work is a way in which we define ourselves and define our contribution. We're not just doing it to get money. And one of the reasons why that's important is because we've often denied people who are so-called disabled the ability to contribute to what their abilities are. You know, I have a speech disorder, which is one of the reasons why I sound like I've smoked way too much cigarettes. Uh, that's not the case. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, as a result, I have to navigate around sometimes how long I can speak and had to make sure I prepared my voice for our time together. We were very careful in this uh, book to insist that on the cover, there be someone who is in a wheelchair. And I think you have the book and you're looking at it and you can let your uh, listeners know that that person in a wheelchair is not being helped and pushed around, that person is leading a demonstration, as it turns out, for disability rights. So making sure that everyone has an opportunity to contribute, that's a fundamental human right as well. Beautiful. So, I mean, I'm on board. I love I love everything that's in this book. Uh, I think our listeners would be on board. But what, what comes next? I mean, I think you... You described how this fight for minimum wage from the idea 25 years ago to it finally happening and it, it, it took movements, it took so much, it took two couple decades. Is it going to take us a couple decades to get to solidarity economics or what can we do to speed that up for you? <laughs> well, we would like to speed it up more rapidly. Um, I do think that there are opportunities that exist with regard to, for example, expanding our investments in the caring economy, that is the care of elders, the care of kids, uh, and actually even the care of the planet. And I think that's a lot of what was in the so-called Build Back Better bill that stalled in Congress. And I keep wondering if it had done better, if we'd call it the caring for each other bill, uh, because that's really what a lot of stuff in there was. So I think it's up to people to uh, get involved. You know, one of the things and I'll give some specifics in a minute, is that, you know, when you uh, have the old neoliberal economic story, you tend to look at people who are successful who might have come from backgrounds perhaps like yours and mine. I was a, I'm 
working class Latino uh, son of immigrants growing up in the San Gabriel Valley in La Puente. And I'm a professor now. And people look at that and they go, oh, that's just wonderful. He beat the odds. And all those are wonderful stories. We should be telling stories about people who change the odds, people who organize with others to create educational equity, to get rid of pollution in their neighborhood, to raise the minimum wage, to create investments in a caring economy. We need to be supporting organizing. And part of uh, our commitment to that, if you go on our website for this book, solidarityeconomics.org, you'll find that you can download the book for free. Talk about solidarity with your readers. You'll find a comic book. I think this is probably the only academic book that's ever come with its own comic book that can be used for popular audiences. And we're launching a program, Solidarity Economics for Organizers, to uh, work with community-based organizers to change the way they and we talk about our economy, talk about how equity can be good for all of us, and talk about why movements are central to making this happen. I love that. We, we want to be the Solidarity Economics podcast. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. Um, this was really a great conversation with you. I hope everybody gets the book. I, I did get the book for free, so I appreciate it. And this was such a delight to get to talk to you. Is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know? I mean, you, you plug the website. How, how else can people stay connected with you? Well, go to SolidarityEconomics.org. Uh, send us emails. Let us know that you're interested. We'll try to get you involved in some of these Solidarity Economics for Organizers efforts that we're piloting right now with a couple of community-based organizations to make sure that we get it right. But let me plug you. Uh, this is a fantastic uh, podcast that is bringing a very different sensibility, uh, younger, uh, more contemporary, uh, movement building, intersectional. Uh, I've been really impressed by the work y'all are doing and ha sido un gran placer estar contigo este mañana, esta tarde. I don't know when you're really going to broadcast it, but ha sido un gran placer. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, so excited about what a world centered on solidarity economics looks like. Let's close out with our rapid fire questions, all three at a time, Anishela. So let's start with you. What are you done with? What are you celebrating? What is bringing you calma, etc.? All me. right, so I'm going to start with my matraca. So my matraca this week is to affirmations because they are working for me. And the main one that I'm using this week is I can do hard things. Si se puede. I can do hard things. I got to be real with y'all. I'm going through a very painful period right now. Um, maybe I'll share it at another date. But um, it's been hard to sometimes keep going and, and had a very busy schedule. There's been time when I wanted to bail or not do something. And I keep reminding myself, especially if it's something that's important and meaningful to me, that I can do hard things. And that's been super helpful. So matraca to affirmations that work. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Super inspired by that one. Thank you. Um, all right, ¿qué más? My basura, my basura, my basura. I mean, it's kind of an obvious basura, but I'm going to put the the conflict in Ukraine in the basura. You know, the elements that lead someone to still choose to cause destruction and loss of life for any reason, number one. The focus we give to conflicts in certain areas over other places is another part of the basura. And last one is judging conflicts other countries started 
have started differently than we have judged ourselves when we've started them. So these are three different reasons why I want to put this terrible conflict in La Basura. Right, right there with you. Yep. Basura, basura. Yes. And then I feel like I'm like having like a little pop quiz. Like, what do you, what do you, yeah, what do you got? Next, what do you got? What do you got? What do you got? What's next? What's next? Okay. So <laughs> lastly, my calma. So recently I've had conversations with a few folks around the feeling of being stuck. So feeling like you can't get out of something. And so um, I wanted to share something that helped me recently a few months ago when I was feeling kind of stuck, like not not really being able to, to move. So when I was stuck, I felt like I really wanted to rush past the feeling of stuck. I was thinking about it sucks, how much it sucks to be stuck, how I want to get out of here. Like, how did I even let myself get stuck? Um, so just being really hard on myself. And the thing that actually helped me start to sort of get above water was really th like pushing back against being stuck, like really thinking about what if I just what is there to explore about this period of time? Like, how can I instead of being hard on myself, instead of trying to rush past this feeling, what if I actually explore it? not by being hard on myself, but with curiosity, with like a tenderness towards me in, in this moment. Like, what can I discover from being in this moment right now? What can I learn? And once I thought of it that way, it allowed me to really think, just be more reflective, more kind as I explored the different things that were going on, rather than focusing so much on like getting out and why am I even here? So how can I be with this moment and be tender with myself, be curious and use that as a starting point. And that was really helpful for me. So I wanted to share that in case that resonates with other folks if you're um, stuck. Um, I don't know if there's anything, if you ever felt stuck, Brennan, you would add anything that has ever helped you in those moments. I mean, I don't know what's helped me, but I definitely have, have <laughs> felt stuck. So maybe I'll just take some notes and, and follow this next time I get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's my, my calma for the week. Something I've really been thinking about. I also works for pain too, y'all. Like, you know, if, if you're in a lot of pain, um, you know, not not trying to always rush rush through it and get out of it. Like, what can we work? How can we be with this moment? But uh, yeah, that's me. Uh, what about you, Brenda? What what are your matracas, basuras? Yeah, giving you calma. What well, you got? Um, my matraca goes to our fantastic audience that joined us for our step into our voice and power. Thank you all for for joining us for that event. And something that I've been thinking about, and like you, this is your opportunity, listeners, to chime in. I thought that that workshop, I mean, it was so great. And big matraca to Ana Sheila, who really was the big lead in that workshop. But I thought that would be a really fun workshop to do in Spanish. So listeners, if you're out there, community-based organizations, if you're out there, if this is if this speaks to you, if you think a conversation about being a more confident public speaker, and, and, and part of it is getting unstuck, Please get in touch with us. Contact at tamarindopodcast.com because somos bilingüe and we can do it in Spanish. So That's a good challenge. I love that. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And also extra matracas, extra matraca because March, in addition to being Women's History Month, it's a big month for Tamarindo or these months is a big month for Tamarindo. It's one, one year anniversary as a as a LLC, but also three years with Ana Sheila. That's so wild. big matraca to Ana Sheila. Yeah. Well, big matraca to Brenda to, for bringing me on in the first place and believing in me. <laughs> we are a good team. Woohoo! Um, now, my basura goes to, I mean, you sort of touched on this, but I would say um, just the, the media coverage of the crisis in Ukraine. Obviously, I um, am just like many people I share in the the horrors of the fact that we're that there is a, this unnecessary war and many war is unnecessary. 
But I want to call out, and I know other people have done this as well, that the the media, there's like this fascination, like it's like Team U, Team Ukraine. Uh, right now, downtown City Hall is in the colors, and it's not because of the Rams, it's because of Ukraine. There's like, yes, we, we do have solidarity, but where are people when there's a crisis in Central America? Where are people when, uh, you know, Palestine has been forever been bullied the same way that Russia is bullying Ukraine? I think we ought to just be alert about the double standards. And as Amanda Sale said, like, just because you're Christian doesn't make it righteous. Just because you're white doesn't make it like you're more vulnerable, you're special. Like, let's be honest about the way that we are covering this war Yes, I want peace there and I want everyone to feel safe. And at the same time, we can apply a critical lens and recognize that all lives are valuable. And just because it's a European fair skin community doesn't make it special. Yes, exactly. So that's my basura. And then um, my calma. Well, I guess what I'll say is I love I, I, this. OK, this is not even really a calma, but I'll just use it as my excuse to talk about it. I love watching TV, as you all know. So everybody was watching uh, Euphoria. Have you watched this show, Anna Shayla? You probably haven't. I watched the first season, very actually. Good. And I it was the first and season. It was very good, and it was also very intense. Like, Super I always, intense. like, after watching it, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I need to go do something, like, uplifting. And also, it made me, like, think that I didn't want to have kids también. But, <laughs> no, but, right? but, I, but I also really, <laughs> I also thought it was a very powerful show. Like, just, yeah, a lot of uh, really amazing elements. Yes. Great. Well, everyone just caught up with watching the the, uh, the second season. I really liked the first season. I think they could have ended the series right then and there and it would have been just fine. But we have a second season and that, <laughs> that just ended. Of course, it doesn't bring anybody calma, but watching TV is just the way I unplug sometimes after a very, very busy day. So the, the, the act of watching TV is is the calma, but the show itself. Just a couple notes about the show. Yes, because me, our, our listeners had said that they want a little more pop culture and a lot of our listeners do watch and tweet about euphoria one is like there are a lot of latinos so made with, with speaking roles and main character and their main characters there's maddie there's cat and there's uh, i forgot his name but the young man that is the new character this season that befriends um you know our, our main character so yay for representation yay for slightly you know, diverse schools there are people of, of, of different ethnicities with speaking roles milagro to that <laughs> um and and I, I guess a special matraca to the character maddie because she's just such a badass and i know that there's a, a scene that spoke to a lot of people where she is giving some advice as a confident person just basically basically says that you know 90 uh, percent of of being a badass is like confidence is being confident, but nobody knows if confidence is real or not. And um, I, I know that spoke to a lot of people. And it's and it, something that I reference in our workshop about stepping into your voice and power is that there's a little bit of science behind that. Like it's actually been researched that if you do some power posing like Wonder Woman, uh, which is a, a power pose and do that for a couple of minutes ahead of something big, you actually literally biologically change your chemistry in your body to be a little bit more confident, a little bit more calm. So maybe there's some takeaways to that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yes. OK, so that with that, you know, we, we had a fabulous conversation. I want to let you all know that we absolutely love when you write us a podcast, Apple podcast review. So sweet and wonderful. Keep on doing it. Yes. We just got a few and we were so excited. It really makes our heart go pitter-patter. Yeah, please, please. 
please, absolutely. If you if you're thinking about, it, also get in touch with us because um, we'll get we'll we'll reply. So yes. <laughs> the reason I'm talking about Euphoria is because one of our listeners was like, "Oh my gosh, please talk about Euphoria." And I was like, "What did what did you like about it?" I was like, "Totally talking to her." She's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe her! I can't believe you're talking to me!" <laughs> and please reach out to us. Like we, yes. uh, um, their DMs are open. You know? <laughs> yes, and also for ideas because we are you know um, in the process of coming up with uh, a schedule pretty soon with our next episode. So we'd love to have your input. Yes. We want to know what y'all want to hear. We want to talk about what y'all want to hear. So Exactly. So contact us at contact at tamarinopodcast.com. All right. Until the next one. Ponte un suerte. Bye, y'all. Los queremos. Bye. Abrazos. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Anishayla Victorino with production support from Josie Melendez and Augusto Martinez Delgado of Sonoro Media. Our theme song is by Jeff Ricards. If you like our show, please rate and review Tamarindo Podcast or share an episode with a friend. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa. Eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI, FPEI, 220099. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.